From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A man sent to prison for life as a teenager got a second chance. He knows many people have preconceived notions. That they understand you, that they know who you are. He says the challenge is pursuing your own story. Being able to just set your own path and accomplish the things that you're setting out in your life to accomplish, I think that's the biggest thing to overcome. Life after prison. Then, a Denver nonprofit that sells soup mixes and more to help women get back to work. Their sales are up, but there's more to the story. We get the sales and we create more jobs, and yet we have women who are really having a hard time right now. Then, fostering post-traumatic growth and the rich history of Colorado's Mexican dancing. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Over the years, I've followed the case of Curtis Brooks, now 42. He was sentenced to life without parole when he was a teenager. For Colorado Matters' 20th anniversary, we're listening back to stories we've followed and in some cases providing updates. First, an early story I covered in 2018 about how a 15-year-old Curtis Brooks, decades earlier, was sentenced to life without parole. My name is Bruce Groday, and I'm a former juror on the Curtis Brooks trial. During the trial, basically what we heard was that Curtis was at the arcade in the Aurora Mall. Curtis Brooks had been kicked out of his house by his mother. She was addicted to drugs, was abusive and neglectful. It was snowing outside, and Brooks was inside the mall playing video games when he met three boys around his age. At some point, the boys hatched a plan to steal a car. They all left the mall and went over across the street. That's where 24-year-old Christopher Ramos was walking out of an ATM at a bank. They confronted him. One of the individuals actually shot the gentleman, shot him uh, in the head. Grodet says the boys tried to steal Ramos's car, but the car wouldn't start. So they ran through the snow. There were police at a station a block away. And they were able to very quickly follow the tracks and follow the kids uh, to an apartment complex. From the beginning, Grodet says the jury understood that only one boy of the three fired the fatal shot. They weren't saying that Curtis Brooks was the one who fired the shot. But the prosecution explained that meant Brooks was guilty of felony murder, which is still murder in the first degree. If you're involved in a robbery or any other circumstances and there's a someone killed in that, anyone involved in it is just as culpable as the person firing the shot. Grodet says the jury deliberated for a day. We went in and gave the court our verdict. They found Curtis Brooks guilty. Grodet and the other jurors were excused to the jury room, and the judge came in with the prosecuting and defense attorneys. And uh, they said, you know, uh, thank you for your service. Do you have any questions for us? 
They had a lot of questions, and the answers they heard after the fact gave them a very different picture of the verdict they just delivered. What we heard was that Curtis had no prior criminal record. However, the other three individuals had lengthy rap sheets. And what we found out was that the three that morning were on basically a crime spree. They were breaking into houses. They had stolen cars. I asked the judge, well, will this get to be something that we get to consider during uh, the deliberation for the sentencing hearing? And maybe the judge had said something earlier, very in the beginning of the trial. I certainly don't remember it. But the judge said, oh, no, this is a felony first-degree murder trial. The fact that you found him guilty makes him automatically convicted to life in prison with no possibility of parole. Grodet said he was shocked. I could hear several of the other uh, jurors in the room uh, gasp. One of the questions that was asked was, did you ever try to work out a deal with him? Because he had no prior convictions, the defense attorneys told us they begged. But prosecutors did offer a plea deal to one of the boys that took part in the crime who, like Brooks, didn't fire the fatal shot. Grodet notes he's white and is now out of prison. Another boy who was 13, also white, was too young for adult court and went through juvenile court. He's also out. Brooks and the shooter, both black, are the only ones who remain in prison. I come from a very conservative type family, and and I really grew up with, if you do the crime, you're going to do the time. Now, after this trial, I really realize that there's so much more in play. The trial changed Grodet's views on crime and punishment for good, and eventually Colorado changed its laws, and juveniles could no longer get life without parole. The U.S. Supreme Court further ruled that these kinds of harsh sentences for youth were cruel and unusual punishment. Yet some 50 inmates in Colorado have been living in limbo. And slowly, really slowly in Colorado, they're getting hearings to be resentenced. Grodet's felt so strongly about the Brooks case and his role in it that he's testified before the state legislature on the issue, even visited Brooks in prison near Pueblo. He came here and visited me a few years ago, and we sat down and talked for about two hours. Brooks says they didn't talk much about the trial or the crime. He was more interested in basically who I had become since coming into prison. Brooks told Grodet he was put in solitary confinement when he first arrived in prison. He was 17 at the time. They said it was because of his bad behavior in the county jail while he was awaiting trial. In solitary, Brooks says, he started reading voraciously. And I got into philosophy at that time. And once I did that, it became a thing where I hungered for that knowledge and I spent my days just learning. Brooks told Grodet he read many of the great philosophers, studied languages, and learned math. He got his GED and has been taking classes from prison at a nearby college. Brooks lives in what's called an incentive unit. It's for inmates with good behavior. If he is released one day, there's one thing that scares him. That I would forget all of this and become complacent. And that's why I try to put myself mentally in a place where I will never forget the circumstance that brought me here or the impact that it had on Christopher Ramos or his family. I just really hope that Curtis has a chance of a life he really deserves because he absolutely has paid for his crime.
That was in 2018. It turns out later that same year, then-Governor John Hickenlooper granted Brooks clemency. At the time, Hickenlooper issued a statement. He noted that, quote, young offenders who have grown into exemplary individuals and have learned from their mistakes should be considered for a second chance. It took seven months after that for Brooks to be released. I was there when he walked out of prison after 24 years. One of the first things he did was call that juror you just heard from, Bruce Groday. Hello? Hello, is this Kurt? <laughs> yes, it is. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing great and standing outside the prison right now. They just released me. Oh, that is fantastic. Yeah, that is great. He reiterated that he hadn't forgotten why he was sent to prison in the first place and said he'll always remember the victim, Christopher Ramos. People might think that I've done 24 years and now I'm, I'm being released, so, you know, I'm moving on from this situation, but this is something that I have to carry with me every day. According to Brooks' lawyer, most of the 50 or so Coloradans who, like Brooks, were sentenced to life without parole as juveniles have been resentenced. A handful, for various reasons, are still awaiting resentencing. I asked Curtis Brooks to give us a brief update on his life. He's now living in New York. And Curtis, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I can't imagine it's been smooth sailing, being out of prison. Uh, you were convicted before you could do adult things like pay bills, rent an apartment. What's been the toughest part of adjusting to life after prison? Honestly, for me, the the toughest part has been perception. Um, whether you're talking about the professional arena or just in personal life, when people hear of my circumstances and the fact that I'm a person that spent 24 years in prison, they automatically come up with an assumption of who I am, what I'm about. Um, so it's definitely a wall that I have to tear through and continually prove to people that I'm not what people may think. I'm not who you would assume that I am. I'm a very, I'm a person with unique circumstances, but I'm no different than the next person walking down the street. What do you think people expect from you? Um, they expect the rough, tough, rugged exterior, a person who grew up in a criminal atmosphere and therefore is, you know, looking to just get over on the system in some way. Um, a person who might just have that rough around the edges, not able to relate or, you know, maybe dangerous in some ways is definitely something that I've dealt with. Have you been able to find meaningful work? Um, I've been through um, a, a lot of different situations, partly because of COVID. Um, when I came home, I was working with a nonprofit, um, helping out with five uh, partnered elementary schools. I've gone in and spoken to fifth grade classes, um, oversaw programs that were implementing like tutoring in the schools and trying to just help the kids get their grades up. Um, and shortly after, well, during that, I can't say shortly after, my boss allowed me to go into an internship with uh, the top law firm, lobbying firm in the state of Maryland. Um, and I was also able to attend a government policies course uh, taught by my boss at the University of Maryland. And that's when COVID hit and kind of shut that opportunity down. Um, but from that, I wound up transitioning into being able to do contact tracing for a year 
and lend some part in helping people cope and find a way to deal with the whole COVID situation. Now, maybe the headline of the story is that you were recently married. What have been the challenges developing relationships outside of prison? Uh, that's where I spoke on the personal aspect. Um, there were many times I would meet people and them getting to know me, my personality and the way that I am. We would hit it off and then they would. I, I'm a person I feel like I people deserve to know. So then I would inform them like this is my situation. This is my story. You can watch it. And there were so many times that I just never heard from people again, like at all. Um, so it was definitely the difficulty of balancing um, that kind of shock factor for people who didn't know Um countered by the people who knew my story and were only interested in having anything to do with me all at all purely because of my story. Um, so it was definitely um, a trying time, a very informative time, um, and a big education. How did you meet your wife? I actually... <laughs> Um, I met my wife uh, through Facebook, actually. Um, she watched my episode when A&E would air it. Um, I you, were a, you were on A&E in a documentary. Yeah. The episode was on A&E, and whenever they would air it, I would tend to get a flood of friend requests on Facebook or Instagram and or messages from people um, on both sides of the spectrum. She just happened to be a person that reached out and sent a friend request, and I, during that time, tried to be polite to everyone, and I would respond and just say, thank you for taking an interest. Her only interest, I guess, you know, was seeing where I was at the time. But in me messaging her and saying thank you, it led to us talking and ultimately um, getting married this past August. And you actually had a guest at your wedding who we just heard from, Juror Bruce Groday. What's your relationship been like since your release with Bruce? Um, I consider Bruce a friend. Um, Bruce is definitely someone that when events come up, um, big events, big steps in my life, I make sure to inform him and invite him to any of those. Um, but honestly, he wasn't the only one there. Uh, one of my attorneys, Ashley Ratliff, also attended the wedding and all of the ceremonies after. Mm. Today, juveniles who commit crimes like yours aren't subject to the same strict sentences that you were. Do you have any bitterness about the time you spent in prison? No. I feel like it was a very, um, very, very big growing experience for me to the extent that when I talk to people, I sometimes reflect back and I, I express worry that if I hadn't gone to prison, would I have had that opportunity? Would I have taken those steps to grow as a man? Um, I explain to people that I consider there are two paths in life. One, you grow older and the other one, you grow up. Mm. I grew up in prison. Um, would I have done the same if I hadn't gone to prison? If I hadn't had the the been forced to reflect and look at the person that I was and decided I needed to change it because I wasn't happy with the path that I was headed heading down. So no, I don't I don't carry bitterness. Just to wrap up, what are your plans for Thanksgiving? Um I'm as as everyone heard, I am recently married. 
So the answer to that is I don't completely know. Mm. Um, I I know that we are doing uh, Thanksgiving with the family and going to spend time with my mother-in-law. Um, outside of that, I, I I don't have all of the information. <laughs> well, Curtis, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Curtis Brooks was convicted for his part in a murder when he was 15. He was sentenced to life without parole and spent 24 years in prison. Brooks was granted clemency and released in 2019. We've been covering Brooks' story for several years and listened back today. It's part of our look back at 20 years of in-depth coverage on Colorado Matters. Many businesses have struggled and even closed during the pandemic, but some have thrived, like the Denver nonprofit Women's Bean Project. It's been busy filling orders of soup mixes and other food products that appeal to people spending a lot of time at home. Today, the women on the production floor are so busy, they don't even look up from their work. Among other things, they're putting together a $100,000 popcorn order and using a loud machine called a filler. So it is set to disperse the same amount right now of popcorn every time. We use that machine also for filling for beans. Tamara Ryan has led the organization for 18 years, back to when they only sold packaged beans with spices for people to make soup. Today, the mission is the same, hire women who've had a tough time getting jobs. But they now sell a lot more cookie, brownie, and cornbread mixes, even dog treats, and some very gourmet popcorn. So what they're making right now is blue popcorn with uh, salted caramel seasoning. There's also rainbow popcorn with pink Himalayan salt and black pepper seasoning. Sabina Dyer is one of the women who works here. During a break, she describes her hour-and-a-half commute each day. She has to take two different buses. It means waking up at 4.30 each morning, but she says it's worth it. She figures she's lucky to have any work at this point. It was going to be hard for me to get a job because of my background. Dyer has a felony on her record for robbery. She was addicted to heroin and methamphetamine and says she had to give up custody of her five-year-old daughter to her mother. She got this job five months ago, and she says her boss promoted her pretty quickly to lead production assistant. She makes $15.50 an hour. Not everybody gets considered for the lead position. You just have to show like leadership and that like train people. And I just when I was barely here for like a month and a half, two months, I was training people and stuff. And she just saw the potential in me, so she offered me the position. Dyer says she has a case manager here who helps her when she needs just about anything, emotional support or, say, help filling out applications. She says she hopes to get her daughter back someday soon, and she hopes this job will give her enough experience to eventually move on. I sat down with Tamara Ryan, again, who's led the Women's Bean Project for 18 years. The organization has been around for more than 30 years. In 1989, our founder, Jossie Ayer, was volunteering at a daytime homeless shelter for women and kids. And what she saw was that the women would come in and use the services of the shelter, and the shelter would keep them safe. And then they'd leave because they'd get a job. But the same women kept coming back over and over again. So she had this idea that if she could teach women how to work by actually working, that would be the cure for poverty. So she invested $500 of her own money and put two women to work making 10-bean soup. 
And that's as simple as it was. There was not a ton of market research or anything like that. But now today, 32 years later, 10 Bean Soup is still our best seller. And why soup? Jossie was in her late 50s when she'd gone back to school to get her master's in social work. And she noticed that a lot of her friends were eating bean soup for health reasons. And that's really where the idea came from. And tell me a little bit about what you do sell here, you know, some of the products that you guys make. And I know you have a retail um, store here. We started with 10 Bean Soup. Today we have six different soup mixes, and then we have a line of baking mixes. And then through the years we've added other things, so more snack kind of items. We have instant beans and rice cups a pretty big variety of different products. And the idea of that is that we want to be something that people think about year-round because bean soup doesn't say summer as much as we try. And where are they going to go after this program? I'm sure you have some connections in the community to folks who are hiring. The great thing about what we do is we work with each woman to help her determine what her career entry-level job is going to be when she leaves. And that's going to be as varied as the women are. So, for instance, we have a graduate from last year who got a job at P.F. Chang's working in their bakery, making wontons and egg rolls, and she loves, loves, loves to bake. And so it's her perfect job. We have another graduate who really wanted to become a coder, and so she went on to coding school when she graduated, and today works in the back office for Aetna. So it really is as varied as the women are. In terms of finding jobs, is it much easier for women now because so many jobs are open right now and people are looking for workers? It's such a wonky time right now. Yes, lots of employers are looking for employees. And when someone graduates Women's Bean Project and has that certificate, that's sort of a stamp of approval. It's a great entree into employment. So I would always recommend for an employer to give our women a chance, because if she's finished our program, we can say that she's a great employee. So now is a really great time. But What I find right now is that it seems like there's this disconnect. There is a shortage of employees, and yet the unemployment rate is pretty high. And so I think that sort of all the normal rules that apply to employment right now sort of don't seem applicable. And maybe it's the challenge of finding housing, child care, and those other factors that make it hard for folks to get into jobs. Well, I think if someone doesn't have a place to go home every night, how can you expect them to come to work every day? And really, as a community, we tend to segregate employment from all those basic needs. And we can't afford to keep doing that because if we can't house the people or help them find housing in our community, then we can't expect them to be great employees. Now, a lot of businesses have struggled and organizations have struggled during the pandemic. And... You guys have actually done really well. Can you tell me about how things are going, uh, how things went during the pandemic, and sort of what you see for the future? Our first inkling that something was happening was March of 2020, and our sales started to increase. And we have a sales channel on Amazon, and in the first two weeks of March, we did as much sales in those two weeks as we did the whole year in 2019. And so we were not, just like everybody, we weren't expecting it. In the end, our sales increased about 45% last year. And so that was great, except we were also trying to manage how do we keep our employees safe and how do we make sure we have enough women and then how do we 
meet the mandates of the community with masks and only a certain number of people on site. And so it was, again, just as stressful, just kind of in different ways. We've also been able to see that a trend that was starting before the pandemic, which was people wanted more and more to make purchases with meaning, that really accelerated last year. And we're seeing that continue. So our sales actually have continued to be higher even in 2021 when the, you know, it's not as dire from a pandemic standpoint. Yet, what we're seeing is that there's a collective stress. Everybody is stressed. And so if we're hiring women who are more vulnerable to that stress, they're struggling even more. So the challenge is getting all of this done with the factors that workers are going through. It's pressure from all sides. You know, we're a sales-driven organization, even though we're a nonprofit, because sales create jobs. And so then we get the sales and we create more jobs, and yet we have women who are really having a hard time right now, who are not able to find affordable housing, who are not able to get their mental health issues addressed, who are struggling to stay clean and sober. And so all of those stresses you know, don't get resolved just because we have more sales. And this upcoming holiday season, this is your biggest time. So what do you foresee for the next couple months? Well, we make 70% of our annual sales between September and December. So it is always our crazy time. And we're so grateful because so many people buy our products as gifts and send them to family and friends all across the country. So we want to take advantage of that opportunity right now. And so we're just doing the best we can with supply chain issues, you know, random things run out and we have a hard time getting them. But we will, we will just do everything we can to make it work. And I think when we do that, when we have the attitude, a positive attitude about what we can accomplish, that's setting a really good example for the women, that we have the ability to do it. It just means that we need to figure out a solution for how we're going to accomplish the goals. Tamara, thanks so much. Thank you. Tamara Ryan is CEO of the Denver-based Women's Bean Project. About 60% of the group's operating budget comes from the sale of the products. The rest comes from fundraising. When we come back, overcoming anxiety from the pandemic to find happiness. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. What caused the East Troublesome Fire? More than a year later, we still don't know. When it comes to finding out the cause of major human-caused wildfires, Colorado does worse than any other Western state. You know, you kind of pull up, look at it. If it's not super obvious, then, you know, yeah, I looked at it. But there's fires where investigators I know, nobody ever showed up. I'm Ben Marcus. Read this CPR News investigative report about the cost of unsolved megafires at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. The pandemic has taken a toll on mental health. People have dealt with feelings of isolation and loneliness during the lockdown. Many see it as a total disruption of normal life. And there's a lot of anxiety about what happens next. But what if that post-traumatic stress could be transformed into post-traumatic growth? CPR's Rebecca Romberg shares a recent talk from the Aspen Ideas Festival. At the beginning of the coronavirus epidemic, it was just going to be a few weeks, two, three weeks, four weeks, maybe a couple of months on the outside, right? And then two months became three months, and then things started to cancel. 
And then it turned into six months and then a year. And then it kind of dawned on us. This was supposed to be a, a disruption. It's actually a transition. This is Arthur Brooks. He's a social scientist, a Harvard professor, and a writer for The Atlantic. He studies how people lead happy lives and the things that make their lives fulfilling. And through his work, he's gained a reputation as a happiness expert. His work gained a new sense of urgency when the pandemic began in 2020. Since the coronavirus sent the world into lockdown, isolation and fear have been on the rise. And happiness... It's been in short supply. Some of you have gotten sick. Some of you have lost your job. Some of you have lost businesses. That's really tangible, but most of you haven't, blessedly. But you've experienced the hardship too. Fear, disappointment, loneliness. How can we come out of it better than we went in? Today, in a talk from the virtual Aspen Ideas Festival, Arthur Brooks offers ideas on how to cope with those negative feelings during a difficult time and use them to thrive in the future. The pandemic continues to harm people's mental health. Four in 10 American adults reported symptoms of anxiety or depressive disorder, according to a Kaiser Family Foundation report published in February of 2021. And a new report from the CDC emphasized the importance of access to mental health services during the pandemic. Now, Brooke says if we pull back from the loneliness and the fear and the stress. The trauma of this pandemic is really about an onslaught of challenges and changes. And he knows this isn't the first time in history this has happened. Brooks points to a story from his own family. It's about his mother-in-law, who grew up in Spain. She was caught as a little girl in the Spanish Civil War. Her father was a surgeon for the side that lost the Spanish Civil War, who subsequently spent many years in prison. So she grew up in poverty. Um, at the age of 21, she moved to Barcelona and married my father-in-law, a marriage that turned out not to be very happy. As a matter of fact, he left soon after his children were born with another woman. Recently, my, my beloved mother-in-law, who's now 92, and I were discussing this, and she said, that was the worst time of my life. And she thought about it a little bit, and she said, and it was the best time of my life. <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? How can it be the worst and the best at the same time? She said, because had it not been for that terrible time, I wouldn't have become the person that I am. You see, after my father-in-law left and she had to take care of her kids, she had to be resilient. There were no choices. She went to college. She became a teacher. She became the person that she turned into, somebody fully alive with her own friends, with her own life, with her own profession. It got me thinking. How often do we leave that kind of value on the table? Turns out that what my mother-in-law was talking about is a, is a great phenomenon in my field of social science. It's a phenomenon that we call post-traumatic growth. Brooke says post-traumatic growth has tangible effects, and they are amazing. He says people who experience it have deeper friendships and savor relationships in their life more than before the trauma. And that can last for the rest of their lives. He says post-traumatic growth makes people more resilient in future trauma. In his talk at the Aspen Ideas Festival, Brooks laid out some simple advice to help listeners find post-traumatic growth in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic. He broke the advice into three key steps. 
Step one, we have to learn to manage our bad feelings. The basic negative emotions are sadness and anger and disgust and fear. We hate them because they feel bad, but give thanks for your negative emotions. Why? Because Brooke says these negative emotions serve a fundamental purpose. They actually help keep us alive, often by triggering our fight-or-flight response. But they can wreak havoc when they go unchecked. And there's a particular negative emotion that's gone unchecked for many during the pandemic. Uncertainty is a big problem for us, or it certainly has been over the past 16 months. Brooks says this uncertainty is driving a lot of the mental health struggles people are experiencing right now. People are asking questions like, what happens if someone I love or I get sick? How am I going to pay rent this month? What is the world going to look like when the pandemic ends? Brooks says the key to managing bad feelings like uncertainty comes from observing the feeling and then actively taking steps to manage it. How do I manage it? I got a great suggestion on this from a friend of mine who's an oncologist, he, a cancer doctor. He specializes in late-stage cancer diagnoses. He has to give people really, really hard news. And he says the first thing that they do when they find they have a late-stage cancer diagnosis all the time is they go home and they Google their disease. So he says, don't do that. Proactively, don't do that. Tomorrow morning when you wake up, it's the first thing you're going to think about, oh, that conversation I had with my doctor. But the next thing you should think about is to say, I don't know what's going to happen today. I don't know what's going to happen next week or next month. And I sure don't know what's going to happen next year. But I'm alive and well right now. And not going to waste this moment. This is how all of us should deal with traumas and pain and sacrifice and trouble, small and large is we should start every day by neutralizing the uncertainty, managing our feelings by saying, I don't know what's going to happen this week or next week or next year or over the next 10 years. I don't know. It's uncertain. But one thing I truly know is that I am alive and well this day. This day is a gift. I will not waste the gift that is this day. Now comes step two. Brooke says we have to actively deal with our loneliness in healthy ways. In 2021, he says a great way to do that is to prioritize in-person contact versus social media. When the world shut down and many events turned virtual, the use of social media platforms skyrocketed. But the problem, according to Brooks, is that social media simply can't replace in-person communication and connection. In fact, he calls social media the junk food of social contact. You know, if you are really hungry and you always satisfy your hunger with burgers and fries and milkshakes, you can literally become both malnourished and obese simultaneously. How can that be, malnourished and obese? Because your calories to nutrients are all messed up. Now, this is not a nutrition lecture, but the metaphor is apt, isn't it? you know that the way for you to be healthy is to get not enough calories, but enough nutrients. And that's what you need socially as well. When you're looking at social media all day, which is the natural tendency in which the commercial world is pushing at you, luring you, it's saying, this is where you'll get what you need. This is, it's, it's, this is a flashing fast food sign. And all that'll happen is too many calories and not enough nutrients. You will get lonelier while you're actually consuming too much. No eye contact, no touch. It promises everything. It delivers next to nothing. 
There's a wonderful body of research that's largely spearheaded by, by Gene Twenge, who's a social psychologist at San Diego State University, that shows that anything more than about an hour a day of social media across all platforms, you'll get lonelier the longer you're on it. Brooke says a better strategy for feeling connected is to put down your phone. And if you have friends or family you can connect with in person, make more eye contact with them and touch the people you love. In fact, he says there's a body of research that shows there's a specific amount of touch that will ensure you get a mood booster. 22 seconds of contact, a 22-second embrace. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You need a 22-second hug, and you need it therapeutically every two hours from the people that you live with, from the people around you. What this does is increase your levels of oxytocin, which Brooks calls the love hormone. And that increase in the love hormone has a positive impact on your mood. Now, step three. In order to make the most of big changes in your life, you have to lean into that change, even when it's hard. Change can feel like a source of loss, grief, and sometimes even trauma. But Brooks points out transitions are a very normal and regular part of life. One of the things that I point out to my students at Harvard is that if they're 31 years old, which a lot of my graduate students are, I say that you were born during the fall of the Soviet Union, which was a tectonically important transition in world affairs and geopolitics. It was never supposed to happen. Foreign policy has never been the same. Ten years later was 9-11. That was a trauma that really changed American life in a big way, in the way that we live, but the way that we understand ourselves and the way that we understand the world. That happened during your lifetime, too. And then a decade later, we had the financial crisis of 2008, 2009. And you lived through that. You saw that the, the, not just the financial system changed, but your vision of what the economy could and should be. That was a big transition. Fast forward 10 more years. that got the coronavirus. You understand what I'm saying here. Every 10 years, there's a massive, unwelcome collective transition. And this is interspersed with your private transitions. According to the data... Every 18 months or so, there's going to be a transition in your life, usually involuntary and therefore unwelcome. Transition is part of life. Change is part of life. Brooke says the key to getting through unwelcome changes is to embrace a phenomenon called fading affect bias. What that means is you forget the discomfort of the change and instead embrace the lessons learned from that discomfort. And actually, Brooke says that moment of change, when you're transitioning from normal to new normal, is a period of intense creativity and growth. Think about it in your own life. Think about it when you were going from college to your first job, and that period that was you were learning about yourself and you disliked it, but, but you think back on it now and how it made you who you are. You understood yourself better. That was because of the intense creativity and growth. It's interesting, I, I saw a study that showed that when you're going between professions, between jobs, it can lead you to a process of grief. If you change jobs, professions, and locations all at one time, it is the same dislocating emotional impact of losing a member of your immediate family to death. And yet, that's the time when people find that they understand themselves the best, when they form their own characters. We can miss this, however. We can miss this creativity. We can miss this change. Don't resist. If you resist, you won't get fading affect bias. You won't get post-traumatic growth. You won't get the benefits from this. Change should be a signal to you, 
albeit an uncomfortable one, that adventures await. When it comes to leaning into change the pandemic forced on you and reaping the benefits, Brooks has some specific advice. Talk about the pre-pandemic experiences and relationships and general phenomena in your life that you disliked and you want to leave behind and make a strategy to leave them behind. Make a list of the things that you don't want to go back to and make a second list now of the things that you like from the pandemic. That after-dinner walk, time in your garden, coffee with your spouse, somebody that you love in the middle of the afternoon that you never would have gotten before. Make a list of those things and make a strategy to keep them. If you really want to grow and change and you want it to be good for you, you want post-traumatic growth, then you need a strategy, a metacognitive strategy to do so. And that requires these lists. What will I leave behind that I don't miss? What will I keep that I actually liked? I didn't choose coronavirus. You didn't either. It chose us. My only choice is not whether I suffer from the coronavirus epidemic. It's how I choose to react to it. This is an opportunity for me to grow, to become stronger, to become a better, happier person, and you too. You and I, we can look back on this time together as we emerge from the pandemic as a sacred time, as a sanctified time, as a beautiful time, because it helped us understand who we are and most importantly, who we can be. Arthur Brooks spoke at the Virtual Aspen Ideas Festival in June. You can listen to his entire talk at CPR.org. Brooks also has a new podcast. It's called How to Build a Happy Life. Arthur Brooks is a Harvard business professor and behavioral social scientist. He spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival, which will return in person next year. Our thanks to CPR Audio Innovations producer Rebecca Romberg for that segment. Companies use social media influencers to reach potential customers. One university in Colorado hopes the approach will attract new students. CPR's Paulo Shalsada reports. A light rain is beginning to fall as Yesenia Chinchilla is served a bowl of piping hot pozole, stacked high with chicharrones in a downtown Denver eatery. But instead of diving in with a spoon and gusto, she takes out her phone and begins snapping photos. Those pics will end up on her massively popular social media venture, Denver Food Scene. She's been at it for eight years, but recently she's blown up. So I basically gained 400,000 followers in one year. It's insanity. That's allowed Chinchilla to turn her hobby into a business. She goes around town showcasing local restaurants and food on TikTok and Instagram. Denver Food Scene primarily makes money through marketing partnerships with restaurants and other businesses. It's gotten so lucrative that her husband, Daniel, has joined the venture. Quitting my job to do this full-time with her in the social media world where, for me personally, was never something that I was too invested in. That itself was kind of a scary adventure and chance. Their big break came when Metropolitan State University of Denver's online learning program approached them with an advertising deal. Matt Griswold, MSU's Associate Vice President for Online Learning, says traditional media isn't effective for his program. 
MSU Denver does a lot of those bus advertisements or advertising at the airport, but for online learning, we're trying to really find that niche audience of virtual learners who want to engage with the institution without coming to campus. Now, Chinchilla's posts include a code to waive MSU Online's application fees. Griswold says Denver Food Scene's audience is perfect for MSU. The school primarily teaches first-generation or non-traditional students, and Chinchilla cultivated her following by profiling a lot of minority-owned businesses. I really just like featuring diversity in my page. That's one thing that I really take pride in, is that I can help smaller restaurants that people probably wouldn't look at. MSU says Denver Food Scene is the first of many partnerships in emerging platforms. And as more and more people turn away from billboards and towards their phone, they don't plan on stopping. I'm Paolo Shalsada, CPR News. Traditional Mexican dance is the focus of a new exhibition in Pueblo. CPR arts and culture reporter Monica Castillo was there for the opening to learn about the dance's history in Colorado. It's a scene you've probably seen before. Twirling bright skirts, smiles, and gritos over the sounds of trumpets and violins. On the opening night of their new exhibit, Folklorico Espectacular, featuring Amalia Hernandez, El Pueblo Historical Museum invited three different groups to celebrate the local history of baile folklorico and the Mexican dance legend who helped bring it to the world. Diane Archuleta is the director of El Pueblo Historical Museum. Well, if you were born and raised or anywhere in Pueblo or southern Colorado, you are familiar with folklorico. Baile folklorico is traditional Mexican folk dancing. It's an umbrella term for a variety of styles of dance from various regions in the country. Many of them have their own distinctive costumes and steps. The billowing skirts and men's costumes change patterns and colors from state to state. The music also changes depending on the region. Folklorico includes traditional Mexican dress and music, incorporating Mesoamerican customs from both before and after the Spanish conquest of Mexico. The costumes can tell a story or represent characters. Some involve props, fans, or scarves as part of the routine. Others require the women and girls to use their skirts to form big, rounded shapes across the stage. Sometimes they have male dance partners. Other routines just feature young women in bright costumes, cheering each other on and twirling to the delight of the crowd. Iskra Merino is the director of the Colorado State University Pueblo Ballet Folklorico and Grupo Folklorico Omawari. She says teaching ballet folklorico is important to her for a variety of reasons. She says it's important children learn about their heritage and the culture their parents came from because many of them were born in the U.S. She says it gives them a cultural identity, makes them more secure in who they are, and gives them support. Choreographer Amalia Hernandez is a monumental figure in the world of baile folclorico. She's considered a pioneer who founded the Ballet Folclorico de México, a group that brought the dance to audiences around the world starting in the 1950s. To preserve that history, Hernandez also established a school to teach future generations traditional Mexican dancing. Glamorous pictures of her performing adorned the walls of the exhibit, placing the international history of the dance next to its local past. Archuleta says Folklorico is still a part of life in Pueblo. 
she worked with the Mexican consulate to bring Hernandez's photos to the museum. She also collaborated with members of the local folklorico community to collect stories from Pueblo. Uh, growing up, you'll find that they perform at all of our local churches, at festivals, at performances. Velma Romero Roival, director of Grupo Folklorico de Pueblo, helped collect stories from the Baile Folklorico community in Pueblo for the exhibit. She's been a staple of the local folklorico scene here since starting her company 25 years ago. Basically, you ask people, do you remember this group or that group? Or a person would approach us and say, hey, I remember a group from way back, you know. And so they would tell us. And so we would look these people up and call them and ask them when did they do it and, and who was their director. And, and then we even got pictures. Velma's daughter, Sarah Roybal, works with her mother as the artistic director of Grupo Folklorico de Pueblo. I think we got pictures from the 1930s. Um, and it was really amazing to see those old, they weren't even black and white, they were more like that tan color because <laughs> they were so old. It was beautiful, beautiful. Like, it's emotional because I am carrying on what they started. And I love being a part of that. The pictures are one way Velma and Sarah help people remember the past, just like teaching Folklorico helps them preserve their culture for the future. Folklorico Espectacular featuring Amalia Hernandez is on display at El Pueblo Historical Museum now through January 31st. In Pueblo, I'm Monica Castillo, CPR News. Thanks for joining us and to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Michelle Fulcher, Nathan Heffel, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Avery Lill, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.